You're tuned into the Chug LLP's podcast. We are a full-service legal, immigration, and tax firm with a global outlook. We partner with businesses to deliver innovative, customized solutions to their most pressing challenges. Join us as we tackle some pertinent issues. Hello, everyone. Each week, we cover pressing topics that matter to you and your business. I'm Ariana Gonzalez from Chug Attorneys and CPAs, tuning in from our San Diego office. And joining me today is attorney Maureen Scories from our Edison, New Jersey office and senior legal consultant Kaveri Vijay from our New York office. Hi there, Maureen and Kaveri, and welcome. Thank you so much for being here. For today's topic, we're going to be discussing the do's and don'ts of IP protection. We're going to cover the most pressing questions we get on this topic, so make sure you stay tuned till the end. Just a quick disclaimer for those tuning in. This conversation is for informational purposes only. It does not create an attorney-client relationship. So if you do have questions, please comment them below or email us at info at tube.com so we can help you out. So let's get started. Maureen, to begin, could you discuss why intellectual property protection is especially critical for startups in their early stages and how this lays the foundation for long-term success in their respective industry? Sure, that's a really good question. Um, So initially, the IP will protect the company's assets. And at the beginning, at its startup stage, the small business doesn't have usually a whole lot in the term in in the form of assets. And so it's primarily its business and you need those the IP protection to give value to that business. Um, Oftentimes, a strong IP portfolio will attract investors to your company as well. If you don't have IP, it often scares those investors away. Um, and so so it helps you to start off successfully for those reasons. Um, it also lays the foundation for future success and for future innovation, because in order to get your IP, you need to do your homework. Um, part of the process of obtaining intellectual property, whether it's a trademark, patent, or other IP, is to conduct research and do some due diligence to determine if your idea warrants the protections under the law. So that helps you understand your field and what is really new that you're contributing, and then it helps you protect it. So it it should be part of the business plan for a lot of those reasons. It helps you make understand also what's out there and to not copy or infringe those other um, the other IP of other competitors in the market space. That's great information. Thanks, Maureen. It is important to remember to put that in the business plan. So, Kaveri, if a company, for example, is contemplating commencing business operations in the United States, would it be advisable to get their trademark or trade name registered, considering it might be a lengthy process? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, thank you, Ariana. Yes, um, I think it will. It always helps to get the registration process ongoing because, as you said, it's a lengthy process. And even though the company is contemplating business operations and putting together their plans and resources here, in the meantime, that name reservation for their trade name or trademark can give them that ownership of their branding in the company when they start commencement of business. That's very helpful for business operations. And the security of having that trade name and logo or symbol already in your own ownership 
you know, so you don't have to redo all your uh, marketing, you don't have to redo all your um, paperwork, your letterheads, you know, everything that you need to go by your company's branding is already set in place. So definitely, yes. Thank you for covering that. That's really important for people in this situation and going through this process to keep in mind. Um, so Maureen, could you give us some insight on how domain name registration plays a part in a startup's IP protection strategy? Okay, that's um, So the domain name registration should be part of every business in part because we all go to the internet these days to get information, um, including information about other businesses. So uh, you will want to make sure that you protect your name and how you want to have that online presence for your business. Um, and the, the process about choosing the name, deciding what domain name registrar to use and who's going to host the website is all part of the process. It is um, The domain name is separate from the trademark. Sometimes people will confuse the two. And sometimes a domain name can become a trademark depending on how it's used, but getting the domain name is a very um, important part of the process. That's really important for our listeners to know. It's it's really an essential part of the process. So make sure you are taking that into consideration. And if you do have questions, you know, check with your IP attorneys. We're always happy to help you guys out. So Kaveri, what are some key terms that one should consider in an IP licensing agreement? I know you have quite a bit of experience on this topic. So what would you typically suggest to someone on this? Yeah. Uh, so IP licensing agreements are very common nowadays, considering so many software licenses, subscriptions are taken, are taken in to account. Uh, some of the key terms would be, first of all, defining the exact accurate purpose and scope of the license, because a lot of times you've seen conflict come in here. Uh, you know, parties generally write a vague or a very broad scope, not realizing at the time of execution that becomes a big problem, because what is what the two sides are expecting is by far very distant from each other and that culminates into a dispute and payment you know not being made saying service was not good enough it was not as per the agreement so one your purpose of the license has to be very clear you know for what all software and for what all functions is it being given you know and the time period for a license because it cannot be given in perpetuity so it cannot be unlimited time so it has to have a time cap on it Right. Of course, then you have your general liability provisions, you know, your indemnities, but something where operationally, commercially, we have seen issues crop up and disputes come up are mostly because of scope, uh, license time period not being correctly defined, you know, and of course, the purpose for which we are giving. So the scope would cover the purpose as well, but the scope will elucidate the actions and the activities that are going to be covering um, uh, that are being covered through that license. Those are all really great things to consider. Thank you for going into detail about that, Kaveri. Those are all truly essential for for this process, um, you know, for someone who is filing a trademark or looking for IP protection. So what considerations should startups have, for example, if they're dealing with a joint development or collaboration in terms of IP protection? Is there anything we need to keep in mind for this? Well, well uh, okay. Yeah, Maureen, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so as far as a collaboration situation, you need to identify clearly what each side or each party in the collaboration is bringing to the table. Oftentimes, uh, the 
entities are bringing their own IP or their own ideas. And that needs to be clearly defined at the outset. So everyone knows who owns what and who's contributing what. If, an, if you are, if the parties are contributing IP, there needs to be included also a license to use that IP for research and development or whatever the collaboration end goal is. And so you want to understand that that license should continue into perpetuity or not. If it ends with the end of the collaboration, what happens um, to that background IP, they call it. And then for the development of IP, right? If you're doing a collaboration, you're developing something, you're working towards some end goal, and there's a possibility of new ideas being created, new inventions. And so you need to clearly identify who will be the owner of the new IP. Is it um, like copyright or patents or whatever, whatever is being created? Are you going to keep it a trade secret? Who will own it? And so then you need to have the NDAs to protect it, um, assign ownership and, and all of those terms as well. So collaborations are really great and it, it helps to be successful to address these things early on so that everyone understands um, what where we're, where the project is going and eliminate the possibility of any disputes. Those are great insights, Maureen. It's it's so important to make sure everyone working on the project is on the same page and you know everyone is in agreement with with the next steps and and what the overall picture is. So I appreciate you diving into detail about that. Um, mm -hmm. Kaviri, are there any, and if so, which um, IP protections that can be negotiated by a startup while they're um, raising funding? Yeah, so often we do see that's the biggest, um, you know, uh, not issue, but the kind of concern that because startups are, what they are getting funding on is their product, which is technology most in most of the cases, you know, and uh, the company, the investors would want to keep that technology with them. And at the same time, the startups have put in all, it's their idea, it is their, uh, you know, uh, hard work in developing that idea. So they ideally would not want to let go of that technology and ownership would be with them. So there is a very thin line between the two because uh, you know the company would let them exit if say it is not making profits or you know it's not scaling up the technology and would just want to keep the IP with themselves still. But generally most of the cases we've seen like in a, a JV situation, which may not happen with an investor, directly in a startup scenario but say in a jv the company owns it it's ideal for the company to own it rather than the investor and the investee and in a startup situation um you know that the company could go through valuations and see what is the value of the technology and then do an exit price if they are leaving the investor is leaving with that or what could be the exit price if the investee is going to leave you know and want to have the ownership then the price adjustments can be made through that so it is really depending on the commercial but yes ideally the sentiment generally remains is that the startups would like to keep the technology you know because they have developed it it's a more sentimental and emotional value actually if you really ask but at the same time it is all in the commercial so it's always good to seek legal advice here you know what your uh, structure is uh, what you're bringing to the table as a startup and then what rights can you have to protect your IP uh, in front of your investor? So a legal advice here will really help you to take it forward. Yeah. 
Those are some great points you brought up, Kaveri. And, and of course, yes, definitely seek um, help with your legal professionals. If you have questions, make sure you are doing this process correctly and you're not missing anything because we, we definitely want to make sure we have a good foundation set up and everything is laid out properly from the beginning so that, you know, we don't go back and find errors later down the line. So I appreciate you sharing those insights, Kaveri. Maureen, can you share with us how non-disclosure agreements may vary across regions? And are there any clauses that startups should pay attention to in this process? Um, absolutely. And so as the world is always becoming smaller for businesses, um, th these are really important aspects to consider. Um, the enforceability of a non-disclosure non agreement will certainly vary across regions. So if you're in the U.S., it's certainly enforceable in the U.S., right? But if you start to work with people outside of the U.S. or your business partners in the U.S. are working with others outside the U.S., you have to consider how far is my NDA um, protected and enforceable. So um, you really want to pay attention to that, um, the enforceability of the contract. You want to be aware of certain countries with weaker IP protections um, and also to be aware of those countries where there's a higher prevalence of theft of ideas and innovations and where knockoffs and things can occur. Um, and then some and then also know the local government regulations relating to your business. So, uh, again, this will impact where you want to do business, where you want to find collaborators and um, invest in growing your business. The other aspect too, as, as far as what changes and varies across different regions is privacy protections. Um, and that goes hand in hand with how, how much, how well you can enforce your NDA. So you also would wanna know local protections um, provided by the governments where you're operating. Some of the key clauses to think about when you're when you're contemplating these types of collaborations and agreements is primarily to have a clear definition of terms, parties, requirements, um, and most importantly, what is your confidential information? What are you trying to protect with the non-disclosure agreement? Um, it's always important to have a definition section to set out the terms. You also want to make sure that you identify for how long it's in effect um, and if other parties uh, often, I mentioned before, you might be working with people who your business partners have other contacts in other countries. And in that way, you can require your business partner to maintain the confidentiality through their business relationships. So it, it's your NDA is only as good as it covers your business and and what others are doing with with that information. So it's always good to step back and look outside the box to, to make sure you address all of those concerns. That's really helpful information, Maureen. I appreciate you touching on all of those points. I know you talked a little bit about privacy, so I do want to dive into that a little bit more. Kaveri, can you tell us a little bit about how trade secrets and sensitive information um, can be protected, especially when this information is often being disclosed to employees and third-party service providers, what can businesses do to protect this information? 
Yeah, Rihanna, thank you for that. It's it's an important point because every day we do see a lot of, uh, you know, issues crop up because of this, because companies are sharing a lot of their business information, client information, uh, material that they have researched and studies about market competition. So a lot goes into the hands of uh, employees and, you know, third-party service providers. So ideally, like Maureen was saying, a good NDA certainly helps to protect that, you know. Uh, but at the time, we do see there are breach of those clauses and employees, irrespective, go forward. Or it may not be intentional, you know, like an employee has gone back home speaking to his uh, family and somebody from the family has disclosed it to somebody. It's unintentional, but a big uh, mishap has happened because of that, you know. So, um, well, um, there have to be strict uh, prohibition of disclosure of really confidential information apart from authorized representatives or if it is required under the exemptions only only that for that purpose it could be permissible and in case there is a breach then of course we have legal remedies at times also because it is considered a theft you know because often employees leave and uh, we have sometimes even seen maureen have worked on some cases where they took the laptops, they took the tabs and everything in which all the company data was in. So that could also amount to like, con like theft of data, you know, and we could go the legal way in filing some kind of uh, legal action against that or also go to the police for filing a complaint, you know, for theft. So it could be either of those cases. We have to see. We don't want to be too harsh because these are very extreme steps. But yes, uh, I think awareness programs really matter a lot. Uh, time to time, companies should, uh, uh, you know, have awareness programs for employees to make them understand what uh, confidentiality is, what sensitivity of that data is. Because sometimes when we sign our employment contracts right at the time of joining, after that, we never see them again and we forget about all that. So I think this concept has to be instilled in employees again and again as part of training, you know, and then it, it, it stays in your head and you know the seriousness of this aspect. I love that point you brought up, Kaveria, and then that's really important to consider, you know, oftentimes when employees are starting a company that is, isn't something they're really focused on, they're just signing things and, you know, to refresh the, the memory and remind them, you know, what's in the agreement and why it's so essential um, that this stays confidential. Um, and that's a great reminder and great insight for companies to consider, um, you know, to make sure that they're their um, precious trade secrets stay um, stay secrets and stay within the company and you know don't get outside where they don't belong so thank you for for sharing that Maureen I have a I'm sorry to interrupt I had a couple of question um, comments to add to that as yeah. well um, one thing that comes up often is just making sure things are identified as confidential it takes a little bit one extra step right but it's one way to like clearly put it on the documents if it's electronic or if it's in paper form just have a stamp right that says confidential either on the outside or you know on every page in case it gets mixed up or separated um, and then another thing too that I've come across with different situations is when you're doing a collaboration or even just generally in-house with your employees to have a reporting process in place so as projects are being worked on, you don't realize how much IP can possibly be created. It could be lost, um, pushed aside. Um, and so just having a routine reporting mechanism as well to sort of make people stop and think, hey, did I create something that's copyrightable or a, could go towards a tech transfer into a patent? 
um, something along those lines. It's it's just good to have some some procedure to capture that IP. Those are wonderful points, Maureen. Thank you for for bringing that up and um, interjecting and letting us know. You know, there is more companies can do to ensure that the important information does stay confidential. So I appreciate you guys really covering that for us and giving us all of your insights on this because I know you guys do have quite a bit of experience in this. So um, we always appreciate your insight, Maureen. Let's say, for example, a startup does suspect um, that their IP has been infringed upon. Um, and let's say they're dealing in a foreign market. So what are the first steps a startup should do? What, what, what action should they, should they take when they're in this situation, when they feel like their IP has been fringed upon? What advice do you have? So the first thing would be to stop and ask yourself, do you have IP protections in that country, right? A lot of people might get IP protections in one country and then expand and be so excited and focused on the expansion, they forget to also obtain pat IP, patent, trademark protections in the next country where they're expanding. Um, and so that's the first thing before you do anything. Stop, back up, and make sure that you have registrations or at least applications to protect your IP. Um, if you do, then you can send the cease and desist letters. But you'd be a little foolhardy to send the cease and desist letter first, and then your competitor receives it and goes and files for their own registration to beat you, right? So um, I would do it first, make sure you have the proper protections in place, and then you can send a cease and desist letter to a competitor or so somebody who's infringing on your IP. Uh, and then there's options after that. You can try to work with the other party, instead of being a competitor, you could try to make them a business partner, depending on the circumstances and the personalities involved. Uh, you can also file a lawsuit to um, get an injunction to stop the com competitor from hurting your business. There's a lot that goes into all of those decisions, but those are some of your options in that situation. That's good to know that we have quite a few options in this situation. So definitely, if, if you feel like you're in this situation, contact your legal professional, figure out what the best next step forward is. You definitely don't want to take this lightly. So please reach out if you guys do have any questions on this. Kaveri, can you touch on how online and offline content can be protected? Yes, so uh, very relevant for today's time, especially in the e-commerce world when everything is online. And of course, offline we, has been the tradition. So, um, you know, a lot of com companies and clients have come to us with this question. And what we often say is like, it's always get getting a copyright registration for the content helps. So far, so, um, you know, least recently, like um, going through some online websites, uh, I did see like, you know, even the page and photographs that were put and the content, there was a copyright registration certificate put right next to it saying that all photographs and all content on this page belongs to the owner, you know, of this page. So I think uh, people, because what they do is they take pictures from one side and then paste it on another. So in a nutshell, of course, we can go very deep into this, but um, it always helps to have that uh, copyright protection for content. And of course, your agreements have to be in place um, if you're signing it with any service providers, so the third parties, you know, um, any partners, business partners, clarifying who has the ownership of that content and material. You know, that, that should be clear. It should not be taken in. And it should be very clear that if the other party has to use that content and material, 
that is given on the website of the owner, it has to be licensed and approved first, you know, without which it would be a breach. So your contracts have to be very well drafted covering these points. And of course, for your own protections, you must go for the IP protections that are available right now to protect your uh, material, your content, literature, photographs, even design layout, for example. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Kaveri, for, for covering all of that in, um, you know, a short span of time. I appreciate you sharing, you know, how, how these businesses can protect their, their content online and offline. So Maureen, can you talk about why it's important for startups to consider IP during mergers and acquisitions? Is this something they should consider? If so, why? Um, absolutely. So I, I, it, it should be looking at IP during an M&A transaction is just the same as looking at the books and seeing whether they're profitable. Um, it's also part of the risk to assess as well. Um, there's not just profit, but there's also risk to look at when you're looking at IP of a company. Um, and so it gives you some value. It's another way to value the company, right? So so it definitely is 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 something to consider. Um, and the analysis of their um, products and services with respect to what's covering their um, IP versus what's what's not covered, right? So if they don't have any IP protection, then that would be a liability. Uh, they could potentially be infringing another company's IP and just not realize it. And you it could just be a time bomb waiting for a lawsuit. So it is a very important part of the M&A process, and it doesn't get as much um, highlight, in my opinion, when there is an M&A. And so it, there's so many other aspects everyone's looking at, um, but IP is definitely its own subset of due diligence that is necessary. I appreciate you emphasizing the importance of that. And, you know, I'm glad we're talking about it on this video today. So hopefully our, our audience can, you know, take this into account and see the, the significance of this. Kaveri, question for you about online aggregators. Can an online aggregator, uh, aggregator be responsible for services provided by third-party service providers? Yeah, thank you, Ariana. Again, a very re relevant point because in the e-commerce world, this is what we are seeing most of the time. Uh, so um, one distinction has to be made. Uh, sorry about the noise in the background, some emergency. Uh, I think. Uh, yeah, so um, online aggregators are one when you're signing a contract or when you yourself are an online ag aggregator. The main service that you're limited to is about hosting the website. Beyond that, any third party service providers who come on that website, whether they're giving services, selling products or for the content they're putting, uh, ideally it should be the third party service providers responsibility for any of the services or products that they are providing. Uh, an online aggregator's responsibility will only ideally should be limited to hosting the website, functioning of the website. So there has to be, a, though people assume like, you know, any online aggregator, we go by their branding that we got this from so-and-so, you know, website like XYZ, you know. But at the end, if you see the contracts in terms of use, they disclaim all liability because that's on the third party uh, provider. Right. So um, terms of use have to be very clearly, uh, you know, defined to disclaim any liability, clearly demarcating what is their responsibility, what are their obligations and liability and for what, like for any services that they're taking from any other party provider or service provider, it would be basically limited only to that service providers uh, provision of that service and not be coming on the owner of the online aggregator 
of the online aggregator. So basically, these are terms of use which have to be carefully drafted, making sure disclaiming liabilities have to be correctly put in place. Yeah. Thank you for covering that, Kaberia. That's really helpful. Maureen, um, we were talking a little bit about infringing, infringing upon um, existing rights. So how can startups ensure that their IP doesn't inadvertently infringe upon existing rights? What steps can businesses take to make sure that, you know, they're not stepping on anybody's toes? Absolutely. It's a good question. So if the client, if, if the company is has its IP, right? It's already gone through the um, the research and the confirmation that there is um, protectable intellectual property. Uh, if it's continuing to develop its business and products and services, it can it should continue to file patents applications or file the you know copyright registrations in order to continue to protect what it's developing. It's not just a one-time thing, you're one and done, like, oh, we're gonna start off in year one, file for all these applications, and then by year 10, I'm sure your business has changed. You've adapted to the environment, the market, um, all the fast changing um, aspects of each of the um, areas of business. And so in that regard, you continue to file applications and it's it's if someone were to send a cease and desist letter to you and accuse your business of infringing its intellectual property, that application that you have, even if it's not granted, is your defense to say, no, we're developing our own stuff. And this is how we have identified it in these patent applications and we're protecting it. So so it's a it's a great line of defense to have something like that in your back pocket. Uh, the other thing is uh, freedom to operate opinion. So. If you do get a letter from a company that's alleging you're infringing their intellectual property, then you can hire an attorney and say, hey, check this out. Are we really infringing? And that's where you get the attorney to assess the intellectual property um, and then your own business operations. And you can have, uh, if they are able to provide you with an opinion, determining that your business is not infringing these patents, then that would be another defense as well. So there's there are legal um, options for you to build your own portfolio, but also have these um, research memos in your back pocket to defend against any potential infringement litigation. Those are really great things to keep in mind. Thank you for sharing that, Maureen. It's it's something that, you know, every startup needs to consider. They definitely want to make sure that they're not infringing upon any existing rights when they're going through this process so that they, like we talked about earlier, have the good foundation set up properly from the beginning. So, Kaveri, you were talking a little bit earlier about online aggregators. Um, are there any liabilities for the online aggregator? What do these um, individuals have to keep in mind um, in terms of liabilities? So again, uh, you know, it really depends how they have protected themselves in contracts and in terms of their websites, you know, disclaimers in terms of use. Uh, liability obviously should be capped. And if you're an online aggregator, it should ideally be limited only to the services of hosting the uh, website and, um, you know, regarding the functioning of the website. Uh, apart from that, everything content that your so third-party service providers are bringing should be their responsibility. And ideally, it should never be brought on the aggregator themselves, right? So um, these are the liabilities. Of course, somebody can sue them, but then you can have back-to-back -back indemnities asking the third-party service providers to you know, indemnify you for any such claims that are brought upon you. So a good draft, a good legally vetted draft can protect 
most of these liabilities and um, it can give you a very sound platform from exposing you to like an uncapped amount of uh, you know damages and uh, like uh, any extra liabilities that you don't want to take apart from what services that the aggregator is providing yeah that's important to consider for anyone, um, you know, in that situation. So, Maureen, we were talking about startups um, and IP due diligence. Um, how how should startups approach IP due diligence when they're partnering with other firms or vendors? What do they need to keep in mind? So this question is very broad. So, um, you know, I could go off anywhere on this, but it's just at the outset it's another cost of doing business. So I, I, I see our clients and, and people who um, I talk with about this, always looking at it as an expendable cost. Like, well, maybe we'll put our efforts into developing the product, but the IP is so costly and we don't see the value, right? It's not as tangible as seeing a new product that you can put on a shelf, but it is um, a, a cost of doing business. And it improves the success of your business and the and the strength of your business in the market so it's 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 really important so um that would be my main um my main uh theme here yeah, for that i feel like on that a little bit i, I have like a follow-up question for you on that one um yeah. like like how do changes in international ip treaties and agreements impact startups aiming for a global presence is this something that we should also keep in mind so it is, and this could go on as well in a whole separate discussion, obviously. So I'll touch upon this in um, in, in, in just one aspect. Um, at, at a high level, there's definitely regional and international treaties agreements that impact businesses. You can see it even on imports and tariffs and companies deciding where to where to distribute their products based on some of those import export controls and and extra costs involved in how to do that um the other thing it'll and so it'll impact where you operate where you manufacture where you get the materials to manufacture right so there's there's a lot that goes into this um and and at which level of your business uh, you are um, working internationally. The other thing that's really interesting in the last 10 to 15 years is how much sustainability is becoming um, a high um, a high priority in international businesses. Um, one of the things we've all heard about is corporate responsibility and trying to be more uh, socially aware, socially involved um, for community well-being and everything else. And I just wanted to um, highlight, I was reading a report that uh, the World Intellectual Property Office um, Association had put out um, WIPO, we refer to it, as far as um, development and the impact of intellectual property and how it relates to the sustainable development goals that have been published um, since like 2015. They're becoming much more um, mainstream in the media and more talked about these days. And there's definitely a correlation where there's a lot of IP that can be, that is being developed on some of the sustainable development goals, especially with the environment, technology, and just um, overall economic growth. So you definitely need to stay vigilant and adapt your business to stay competitive to the world market. 
but I just I just think that there's so much that you can look into here if you are an international business to take advantage of. Maybe there's government incentives to help with some of these. There's uh, a lot, just a lot of social media that's that's pushing these sustainable development goals um, to be part of everyone's um, business. Thank you for covering that, Maureen. I know this is um, quite a big topic, so maybe we'll we'll save diving into that for part two. If, if anybody wants to see that in the audience, please leave us a comment below so we know what you want to see for part two. Um, we are almost running out of time, so we do have time for one more question, and then I will have to close this out. So, Kaveri, what role does IP play in the valuation and scaling of startups, especially during rounds of investment? Do you have any insight for us on this? Yeah, thank you, Ariana. Again, a very good point because that's something when we're doing valuation of a company, IP is again an important asset. And especially if you're a technology company, then you know it will be based purely on your technology or software that you have developed. But the thing with IP is like uh, there is no certain value because today's technology can be redundant tomorrow. So uh, you know we have to always uh, see in the present time what value that technology is bringing to the table, and also foresee a projection going forward in the next five year or another few years business plan. How much potential does that technology have to scale up? You know, uh, that, will it just go out of uh, the market just like that, or will it be able to sustain competition, keep developing, and keep the customers and the market involved with that technology? So there are various factors, of course, anything to do, but it cannot be completely um, negated because right now everything is very e-commerce based, online based, you know, very tech based. So all that has to be considered. A very valuation point, it's very important, but then there has to be a foreseeability of the technology also that in tomorrow's world, how much it can generate revenue, profit, and how much, you know, it can cover uh, the market space that an investor may be looking at to invest into that technology, based on that technology at least. So it's a close call. Uh, one has to look into the business scenario, look into all the you know, business plan projections, and then come to a definitive figure in terms of valuation. Um, thank you for covering that, Kaveri, and thank you so much, uh, Maureen and Kaveri, for your insights. That is all we have time for today, so that does bring us to the end of our conversation. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. To stay up to date, please subscribe and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And if you have any questions or suggestions, please feel free to email us anytime at info at tube.com and make sure to join us back here next week for more pressing topics that truly matter to you and your business. Until next time, stay safe and take care. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our work, please visit our websites at www.chook.com for legal and immigration and www.chook.net for tax. Be sure to subscribe to get regular business insights from the Chook LLP team.